Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of The Herald Times, and our topic today is leadership. Our, my guest in the studio is Dr. Greg Sipes. He is a clinical psychologist and senior partner of Indiana Health Group Incorporated. He's also the author of a book called Lead As You Live, Live As You Lead. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Greg, welcome to the program. Hey, it's nice to be here, Bob. Thanks for being here. Mary Catherine's not here because you're going to be with her later. Uh, I think I'm setting in for her today, that's right. and that's uh, it's great that she would allow me to do that. As those of uh, some of you know, Mary Catherine's day job is is leading the Leadership <laughs> Bloomington Monroe County program, and, and Greg is going to be speaking with those folks later on today. Well, let's talk about uh, about the concept of leadership, and I know you know in. In your book, one of the things you set out to do early on is sort of define what you mean by leadership. Can you do that? Yeah, I think the the the, the concept of leadership uh, has evolved somewhat. Uh, you know, um, usually we think of leaders as being people who um, uh, direct the uh, point the way. Sometimes we see leaders as being visionaries. They see the big picture and they tell us, uh, uh, you know, where things are going and where we need to go in order to be in the right place in the future. But um, then there also are leaders who we see as being directional. They're the people who make the tough decisions. Um, I also think that a, a part, a big part of leadership and maybe an emerging more important part of leadership here in the next uh, decade or two has to do with the relational aspect of leadership. How are we going to be able to uh, persuade people to participate in ways that we need them to participate and uh, especially in an increasingly fragmented society um, where we have an abundance of information and uh, outlets uh, for data and uh, so on and so forth. How do we get people to uh, to follow? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, we, I don't want to make this about uh, the media today. This, <laughs> this just strikes so close to home because, you know, in uh, – 2007, it's a lot different in trying to figure out what we do as a, as a media outlet, a newspaper, and I'm sure the radio stations are thinking the same thing and television and everybody else because of the, of the fragmentation. And right. this is going on you know, across the board in our society. Just so. about in every aspect of society, I think that uh, everybody is saying the same thing. At least what I hear even in my clinical practice is that people just feel like some of the things that they always used to know for sure – um, and the way things used to work don't quite work the same way anymo- anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, a part of my concept, too, of leading is that uh, it came as a consequence of uh, losing uh, my best friend and my business partner uh, to, uh, to cancer three and a half years ago. And uh, although and he was a psychiatrist and I'm a psychologist, so uh, we uh, kind of tag-teamed our patients for years. I would do the therapy and he would do the medications. Uh, he was never technically in a leadership position uh, uh, with me. Uh, we were uh, always colleagues uh, in our practice together, and even in the hospital. Although he was a medical director, he didn't really he wasn't really in a in a uh, in a uh, authority role with me. Um, and when he passed away, or as he was passing away, we had a very interesting journey to his death, and we talked a lot about life and about psychiatry and psychology and about uh, consciousness, which uh, is referred to in. Uh, uh, that's the scientific word for probably the spirit. Uh, that's probably how we would understand that. We talked about those kinds of things. And I realized uh, after he passed away and I saw the profound impact that it had not only on uh, me but on just uh, literally hundreds. I, in fact, just yesterday I had a patient tell me that she just wept when she read his obituary. And she's, this is three and a half years later and she's still talking about this. I realized that that leadership is not necessarily a position but it's a way that you live. Um, in leading a life, that's really leadership. So in, in hence the name of the book, uh, Lead As You uh, Live and Live As You Lead, the idea that um, you can't be duplicitous. You have to be the same person at home and with your friends and your neighbors as you are with your employees and with your customers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that the, the, the duplicity that maybe um, – uh, has worked in the past. I just don't think it's going to work when leadership is so much more about relationships than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. I want to refer to what you just talked about, leading, you know, leading a life. I know that in the book you, you sort of define and, and talk about how you know, the definition of lead as in leading a life, there are kind of two different definitions. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, and the idea really is that um, you're, you, you are going through a process, you're leading something, and in that process you're having some kind of 
influence on people. Well, we're all going through life. Uh, so, uh, so we're you know, all leading. Yeah, we're sense. all leading a life. And, and the truth is unless you're living in a hut in the middle of uh, nowhere, you're, you're interacting with people. So you're having an impact. You're influencing people even if you don't know you are. I, I realize this even with my own uh, kids when I – they, when they went off to college, I realized that there were so many things that I hadn't told them, Bob, mm-hmm. that I knew as a psychologist that I'd learned from talking to patients for 60,000 hours. And I'm hitting myself in the forehead thinking, you know, why didn't you tell your kids this before they went off to school? So I started writing letters. And I wrote letters to my kids once a month um, for actually for several years. And as a consequence of that, my niece and nephew were included. And and a bunch of friends said, hey, why don't you send me the letter? So I had this little mailing house going out to universities all over, mostly the Midwest, uh, uh, where all these kids that were um, uh, somehow related to my kids, involved with my kids when they were growing up, were getting these letters. And I, I did realize one day that, that this was leadership too, that I was leading these kids um, even by in, 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 in the fact that I wasn't with them anymore, but I was leading them and telling them how life worked. Mm-hmm. So I guess I have a really kind of global position. I think everybody's a leader in some ways, especially if you have kids. There's probably no more central role of leadership in human existence uh, in life than, than, than raising kids. I was intrigued. Again, I, I read that portion of the book. I, I, I confess to Greg that I haven't finished the book, but I did read <laughs> – I read a good deal of it. And, and there were lots of different parts that, that struck me you, in that particular – when you were talking about sending off the letters and, and you yeah. said you know, to your niece and nephew with their parents' permission. <laughs> I, I did that. ask my sister yes. and brother-in-law. Yeah. I, I think that – but yeah. I wondered, you know, what, what was in that first letter that you sent? Do you remember the first one? It, it, and, the, yeah, the first letter uh, – Bob, uh, you know, I, I tried to be, uh, I tried to use some common sense, and I thought, well, what do kids are, what do they experience that first month away from home? And I thought, well, homesickness, which is uh, akin to depression. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what I would want my kids to know is, uh, well, how do you know if homesickness is just homesickness, and when does it become clinical? So the first letter was about depression and talking about the range of depression from the blues to, you know, uh, melancholia, kind of the worst kind of depression. And then I tried to explain to them, you know, if you start to have these kinds of problems, you lose your appetite, you can't sleep at night, you know, that's that is becoming clinical. So it was a, it was exactly what you would expect from a psychologist to his kids. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you better know right. what I do every day. But I don't know that I'd ever told them that before. But I don't know. I guess I, I guess I always assumed before that if they got depressed, I would probably know it because I was living in the same house with them. Mm-hmm. But I wanted them to know that you know if you see if these symptoms begin to happen, then of course from there the letters uh, I, I wrote letters about uh, pornography to both my son and my daughter. You know uh, what is pornography about? What does it mean psychologically? Um, I wrote letters about dating. Uh, how do you look for somebody that maybe will be a, a, a compatible mate? And uh, I wrote letters about uh, oh just all kinds of subjects. Uh, uh, consciousness, I wrote letters about that. I don't – I think they read them. I hope they did. They, <laughs> they, were, they were fairly deep at that point. But uh, I, do, I do know that both of them still have them. Mm-hmm. And in fact, this summer I was moving my daughter uh, from Bloomington where she graduated from IU uh, a year or so ago. Uh, and uh, one of the guys who was helping me move her stuff uh, was one of those kids that I had sent those letters to and he uh, – he said, I still have those two. Uh-huh. Uh, so I think that they did mean something to those kids. That sounds yeah. like it. Yeah. 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 All right. Our, my guest today is Dr. Greg Sipes. He's a clinical psychologist and senior partner of Indiana Health Group Incorporated. He's also the author of Lead As You Live, Live As You Lead. If you have questions or comments, phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. I want to go back to the definition of leadership and, and sort of the, the trend in leadership, how, how leaders have sort of evolved in your mind over time. Well, you know, there's an interesting book um, by, uh, by a guy named Daniel Pink who uh, happened to be uh, Al Gore's speechwriter and Al Gore won the Nobel Prize or at least they announced it this morning. Um, and he wrote a book about a year and a half ago that I got uh, quite uh, uh, by accident called A Whole New Mind. Um, interesting book. Uh, I don't think it ever got on the New York Times bestseller list, but an interesting book. Well, he presented this concept that uh, the world is changing, that uh, there was a time when we valued what people could do in terms of their physical brawn. And the bigger and stronger you were, the more effective you were in life. You could plow more fields. You could lift more bricks. You could do whatever. And that uh, along came machinery. 
And uh, at first it was, uh, I think, skepticism as to whether or not machinery would really replace human brawn. But uh, as a matter of fact, I think we all know these days that we would use a machine anytime we could because it's uh, more efficient and, and more powerful and certainly uh, more cost efficient uh, for, for um, uh, heavy projects. But uh, what Daniel Pink says now is that um, we're now no longer – and, and at, at that point, by the way, we moved from brawn as being kind of the, the gauge by which we measured people and even, even leadership – you know, hundreds of years ago was by, in terms of who was the biggest and strongest, who was mo- the most powerful uh, person in the tribe, for example, might be the leader. Uh, then we moved to uh, left brain functioning, that really the smartest and most capable people became leaders. And so you'll see even in the industrial age, once the machinery kind of took over, that many of the leaders in our society, whether they were by uh, election by governmental leaders or maybe business leaders even, Henry Ford or Thomas Edison. These were people that had incredibly powerful left brain. They were very logical, analytical uh, people who could just um, uh, outpower uh, most of us in an intellectual sense. Daniel Pink says, and I think this is true, that we now have a new piece of uh, machinery or technology called the computer, which at this point has uh, really started to replace our left brain. Computers can remember more than we can. They can analyze faster and better than we can. And his premise is that uh, not our, our, just as we still use our bodies, uh, they haven't become obsolete, but they're not the center of how we function anymore. Daniel Pink's position is that left brain won't be the most important part of our function anymore. He says the one thing that will make human beings different from machines or from computers is that we have a right brain. And a right brain tends to be more focused on uh, empathy and relationships and things that um, uh, are, are a a little less analytical and straightforward, a little bit more relational and, uh, and interpersonal in many mm-hmm. cases. Yeah. Well, I, I want to certainly pursue that, but, I, but before I lose this thought, you mentioned Al Gore, and it seems like he is a uh, he could be probably a chapter in your next book about the idea that it's not the position that you're in, but it's how you live your life. He, he, yes, because he, you know, as vice president, mm-hmm. as a senator. He, I don't believe that most people would have identified him nearly as strongly as a leader as in the last several months or the last year. That's an excellent point. I think that's a great example of um, uh, of uh, a new kind of leadership. Um, you know, I I fear that he may not have had as much impact on the world if he had been elected. Pre- well, he was elected president, I guess, in many people's <laughs> mind. But I fear that if he had been in that position, perhaps he wouldn't have had the same impact. And if Al Gore, and I imagine he does sit back sometimes and reflect, he might think maybe it's a good thing that th- things turned out the way they did because in many ways I'm having an impact on the world that is uh, as profound as anything I could have done in an office. Yeah, he wouldn't have had an Academy Award. That's for no, sure. he sure did. <laughs> certainly wouldn't have an Academy Award. You've got to look at his mantle right now and it's pretty impressive with, yeah, that's uh, with right. a uh, Nobel Peace Prize and an Academy Award. Yeah. Well, uh, again, our guest today, Dr. Greg Sipes, if you have questions or comments about leadership and about some of the things that, that Greg is going to say today, which may challenge you a little bit in thinking about leadership in a new way, Please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. So returning to the left brain, right brain idea, how do you see this new sort of age of leadership or this new style of leadership um, developing over time? That, that is uh, the, the re- relational aspects of it that you were talking about, the use of the right brain as opposed to the left brain or the, or the brawn. Well, you know, uh, it's interesting. I think that uh, we're, 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 we, this is not actually new information. From about the 1930s, we have known really, Bob, that uh, the most powerful leaders are leaders who can tap into what is called discretionary effort. Discretionary effort uh, – uh, it means that uh, there's a certain amount of effort that you give to anything that you do that's a function of um, the contingencies. For example, I'll work, uh, I'll work so hard for my paycheck. But then there's a discretionary effort beyond that that's up to me how much I give, whether I'll give everything I have or not. We've all had the experience of having a boss who um, you know, we didn't really care for. We felt was uh, not very interested in us or didn't really have our best interest at heart. And we might have had to work that job in order to pay the bills, which means that uh, we would give uh, an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. Uh, we've also all had jobs where we had somebody that we worked for who was just incredibly um, 
uh, interested in us and took a, a, a concern for us and we felt like they were good people and we gave them extra. We would give them everything what we had. We would go to the wall for them. What, we, what they have found in the studies is that um, up to 50 percent of, uh, of, a, of a, uh, an employee's effort is discretionary, that the average, day, uh, the average honest day's work for an honest day's pay for an American is 50 percent of what they have. The other 50 percent is discretionary. So as a, you think about where leadership is going, you know, you have to think about how do you get into that other 50 percent because that's the market advantage. In this day and age where all the products that you buy – I was consulting with a concrete company not too long ago and the products that they buy are – you know, they, buy, they all buy the products from the same places. They all have the same uh, mixers and, and so on and so forth. Um, so uh, – you know, the, the owner of the company asked me, uh, you know, where is my market advantage? Because I used to be able to buy better machinery. Or I used to be able to buy product at lower cost. And the answer, of course, is, well, how do you get more from your employees? Assuming that your competitors are only getting 50 percent, how do you get 75 percent? That would be your market advantage. You can get more done with fewer people. Obviously, that means you're more profitable. Mm-hmm. How, so how does this trans? Translate, do you think, to politics? We think of leadership in politics a lot. You've been talking about leadership sort of in a business sense. How does it translate to politics? Well, I, you know, I think I'm, I'm, I'm a, somewhat dismayed about the, uh, the current trend in politics. It feels to me like there is so much uh, uh, disrespect and um, I'm, I'm hoping for uh, some leadership that uh, emphasizes uh, not only a political position and movement in a particular position, but also respect for those that uh, uh, disagree. And um, in, I guess in my own uh, idiosyncratic uh, look at uh, the political landscape, I would almost look for leadership in terms of uh, how we treat each other as much as uh, in, in terms of policy right now. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of policy, uh, the, the most important thing is how do you uh, persuade people to participate in, in, in the way that you believe is the way that people need to go or the na- way the government needs to go or the way the world needs to go? And that is always a function of inspiration. And um, so we need to look to our leaders to inspire us to participate in a given way. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting thing is it's a study show even from – I think the study came from uh, uh, IU Fort Wayne um, that uh, you can't be inspired by somebody you don't trust. And when you look at the polls about our, our feelings about our president or even about our Congress, I don't think we have much trust. So I guess all of this would be, you know, as you ask, how, how does this affect politics? I would, if somebody were to ask me, a politician were to ask me, I would say, you know, I think that we need to move toward the kinds of relationships with constituents where there's a high degree of trust, the ability to inspire, persuade uh, people to participate in new and different and better ways. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I have a, a question that sort of goes back to um, probably even the preface of your your book in which you – I think you started out by saying, OK, why do we need another book about leadership? And then I have an email question that's <laughs> going to take us down sort of that same okay. path. Okay. But um, I'm going to gauge my or, – or frame my question this way. When I think about you know, books about leadership and about courses on leadership, you know, it, it's sort of an idea of somebody's going to – teach me, train me how to be a better leader. Right. Then I, I want to move on to where does the word the, – the word that keeps batting around in my brain is sincerity. <laughs> where does that come in? Because, you know, people can say, you know, if, if, if I start walking around my newsroom today saying how – you know, how's the wife? How, you know, yeah. how, how are the kids? Right. You know, does that right. mean I really do care about – I do care about my people, of yes, course, but right. you yes. know what I'm saying. I believe you, Bob. Yeah. Okay, yes, and, you. and, and <laughs> I, I think that, uh, yeah, too often, uh, in fact, we have been told how to interact with people in kind of um, almost a manufactured uh, t- uh, technique sort of way. I was at a checkout stand uh, a few weeks ago and the clerk, uh, when I was che- – the guy in front of me was an elderly gentleman. He was checking out and she asked uh, him if she could lift anything out of the cart for him uh, as a courtesy to him and he said, no, thank you and they continued to check out. Well, the, the guy who was bagging for her was, a, uh, I think, a mildly mentally challenged man um, and uh, he was doing his job and he likewise asked the elderly gentleman, may I get anything off from your cart for you? And 
there was a difference in the sense in the way he asked it and the, I thought it was interesting because the clerk said, you're not supposed to ask that question. And he said, well, why not? And she said, well, I get marked for that and you don't. Uh-huh. In other words, she was doing it in kind of a contrived way. Uh-huh. But if, I really, if you listened to which of those two people were asking genuinely uh, out of a, a heartfelt sense of wanting to be of service, Clearly, the young man was doing that probably more than the clerk was. Well, to your point, you know, um, I think that uh, the, the contrived kinds of caring about other people and relating to other people um, is pretty easily seen through. Uh, it might be that you can do that as long as the day is going well for you and you've got a, a beautiful 60-degree de- uh, uh, Bloomington day and everything is wonderful on a Friday afternoon. But what about on a Tuesday afternoon when things aren't going well? People see your real character. So over the long run, people really base their uh, decision about whether or not you're going to lead them, inspire them to, to, to participate with you and whether or not you're trustworthy, whether you're worthy of their trust. And worthiness of trust has to do with your actions. Mm-hmm. Okay. And now here's a question that's sort of down that same path in a way. It says, what makes you think the community needs even more self-appointed pompous leaders, in quotes, <laughs> than we've already got? Yeah, I don't uh, – you know, <laughs> I, 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 I don't know that we do need any more self-appointed pompous leaders. In fact, we probably need a lot less. Uh, my book really is for those people, um, but it's also for the, the, the mother of three. And it's for, um, you know, the, the leading from the middle. It's for the middle manager and it's for the high school teacher and it's for anybody who is in a position where they're having influence. Now, the book is written more for business folks at this point, but the concepts and I suspect it will probably write some other stuff on, with, these, uh, with these concepts in them because I think that they apply to everybody. And so I agree with the, uh, the email that well, I don't know that we need any more of these people. In fact, quite the opposite. I think that uh, the kinds of people that I would uh, encourage to become leaders and the kind of leadership that I would want to see more of in our communities would be less arrogance and pompousness and more genuineness, more authenticity. But that has, a, has as much to do with, again, with what you are rather than your position or even what you do. It's kind of the kind of person you are. Mm-hmm. And we all know people like that. We all know somebody in our lives who we will follow, not because of their position, but because somehow, some way, they have a, a kind of informal leadership and, they, and we would participate with them because we believe in them. We trust them. Yeah, I, I always like our, uh, our listeners because we, you know, we, we can count on some really good, <laughs> yeah. solid questions. Absolutely. And, you know, that's a, that's a great question. And I would have to say also from, you know, from my reading of a portion of the book, I mean, you really do address a lot about it's not like leader by position at right. all. It's no. leader by, you know, if you're in your... Um, you know your church group. Yeah. What are you going to do, or how are you going to act that might make somebody you know want to participate with you? Right. More or less. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's 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 leading a life. The new term I think in uh, in business is leading from the middle. Um, it's not by position. It's not even necessarily by what you do. It's not standing up and pounding your fist and claiming that you have the answers to, to certain problems. It's leading in the way that you live and thereby having an influence on, uh, on others. Okay. Our guest today is Greg Sipes. He is a clinical psychologist and senior partner of Indiana Health Group Incorporated. He's the author of a book called Lead As You Live, Live As You Lead. We're talking about leadership today. Please uh, join us in the second half of the program by calling 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or send your email to noon at indiana.edu. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2 owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info. WFIU invites you to our annual listener reception chance to mingle with fellow listeners, meet the cast and crew of WFIU, en route to your evening activities. 
There'll be light refreshments provided by Terry's Banquets and Catering, Upland Brewery, and Oliver Winery. And WFIU's listener reception takes place this evening from 7 to 9 in the atrium at the IU Art Museum. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times. Mary Catherine couldn't be here with us today, but I have one guest, and it's Greg Sipes. Dr. Greg Sipes is a clinical psychologist and senior partner um, of the Indiana Health Group Incorporated. He's also the author of Lead As You Live, Live As You Lead. If you have questions or comments, the phone number is again 855-0811 or outside of the Bloomington area, 877-285-9348. Or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. A good portion of your book is uh, related to the six principles of uncommon sense for uncommon success. Yes. So I want to give you the opportunity to share with our listeners these six principles. Okay. Let's just let's start, see how far we get before we get some calls and before okay. I break in with some other questions. Well, let me explain just briefly that the difference between uh, common sense and uncommon sense. Common sense uh, is – th- <laughs> it's important but I think it's overvalued. Common sense is just that. It's common. Uncommon sense uh, is still sensible. These principles are things that they're, – they're not rocket science and nobody's going to look at me and think that I've uh, come up with the, the best new thing since – you know, sliced bread or hybrid cars. Uh, you know, it, it, the, the, the fact of the matter is that they make perfect sense. The, what I noticed, Bob, in 60,000 hours and 30 years of working with people is that it was kind of – it was pretty uncommon that people lived by these principles. So the first principle of uncommon sense is, uh, is called the principle of the harvest. Um, it's not a new principle. Actually, Stephen Covey talked about it in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. That was probably 15 years ago. Um, and uh, that principle basically says that you reap what you sow. Now, this happens to be a principle that is also found in many of the religious traditions, faith traditions in the world. The concept of uh, karma uh, is the same idea that essentially you're going to get back what you put out. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I have found in my clinical practice is that almost, and this is not just me, I've even had colleagues say it, that most of the things that we see every day most of the problems that people have are the consequence of something that probably they could have anticipated but they just didn't – I mean they did – they could have anticipated the consequences but for whatever reason they ignored them and then they end up in a, in a, in a tight spot in life. Mm-hmm. So again, this is, this is something that we all can live by, should live by but it relates to leadership. Yes. Right? Okay. Yes. It relates to leadership in that, um, uh, you know, again, uh, what we get if, if, as a leader, we want to try to, to, to sow the seeds, to do the things that are going to bring back to us or to our organization the kinds of outcomes that we want to have. It's mm-hmm. short-sighted for a company to mistreat uh, vendors or, uh, or certainly customers. We would never mistreat a customer. I wouldn't. I would hope not. But, but even vendors. People, oh, it happens. I'm it sure. does happen. I'm sure it happens. I've had. I've been the, the recipient a few times of that. But uh, the idea here is that uh, for an organization to thrive, it's important for people to be conscious that however we treat people today and whatever we do today, even the way that we. Uh, uh, deal with each other is going to come back on us. We just had a situation with my practice where we were uh, working with some banks and doing some financing, and I was I was pleased that my partners were very concerned about making sure uh, we certainly were not doing anything that would be immoral or unethical or illegal or anything like that. But they were concerned about the relationship aspects too. That we want to treat these people that we're dealing with right because they've made an effort. We want to make sure that we treat them the way we would want to be treated. And so we would like to get that kind of treatment back later on from our own customers, mm-hmm. clients, right. patients is what right. we call them. Mm-hmm. Patients? Right. Yes, right. 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 Okay. Now, how about the second uh, the second principle? Second principle is called the principle of the common denominator. And this principle really does mean that uh, it is all about you. You know, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the, the catchphrase these days is it's not all about you. But it's the principle of the common denominator says it is all about you. Not everything, not the world, but your life is all about you. Um, over the course of my career, I would hate to give away uh, trade secrets, but uh, people come in with financial problems, marital problems, problems with their kids, problems with their boss, problems with their health, 
whatever. And my answer to them essentially is the same answer all the time, which is, gee, I think if you worked harder on yourself than anything else, everything else in your life would get better. Um, If you work on yourself, your finances will get better. If you work on yourself, your health will get better. If you work on yourself, your relationship with your spouse will get better. People protest about that because they say, well, you know, I mean, you don't understand my husband or you don't understand my kid. It's always somebody else's fault. It's always somebody else's fault. And I say, well, no, it really isn't. I mean, I don't doubt that other people may be doing things that you don't like. What I have found is, though, that if you will do the things that you can do in your life, it is inevitable that those situations will change because you are the common denominator in every one of those situations. From an organizational standpoint, the thing I found is that when leaders do that, when leaders always look at what they can do differently in order to better manage their own lives and to, and, and to be better people themselves, that it's contagious that the entire organization begins to operate that way. Mm-hmm. All right. Before we get to number three, you mm-hmm. mentioned you know, managing your own life. So I don't want to forget the whole notion of leader, leadership versus management. And I know you right. spent some time on that. In the book too. Yes. I, and I'm talking – when I talk about managing your own life, I'm talking about taking care of the things in your life that you know that you can have, have a difference you know, with. Uh, for example, taking better care of yourself. Um, um, you know, maybe uh, being more respectful of others and things like that. Um, I think you only manage one thing. And the mistake that we think is that we're, we manage other people or even that we manage tasks. And I don't know that that's true. I think we manage ourselves. That's the only thing we really have any empowerment, any control over. As a consequence of that, we influence other people to participate with us. And as uh, a unit, then we get things done. We get tasks done. So management, in my estimation, is only over one thing, and that's yourself. But if you manage yourself, then you're leading. Mm-hmm. That's what leadership is. Okay. Yes. Let me take a quick uh, quick look at our phone numbers again. Okay. 855-0811-877-285-9348. And send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Um, I, I keep mentioning those even though I'm sure we could fill you know an hour – Two hours, three hours, whatever it takes, because there's there's a lot to talk about here today. Yes. But we would we would uh, encourage people to participate with sure, us. Absolutely. All right. All right. Uh, number three. Principle number three. Well, principle number three is called the supreme principle of the universe. Uh, psychologist, pretty well known at this point by name by the, the name of Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi, uh, coined this uh, term, uh, the supreme law of the universe. I think is what he calls it, and it's so uh, it's entropy. Entropy is the second law of thermodynamics. It's the idea that everything that we see, everything that you can sense is gradually deteriorating. Your body, uh, your house, uh, you know, in, in, in your car, everything. And we're in a constant um, battle to try to slow down that process of de- deterioration. Uh, that's why we change our oil in our car, brush our teeth, uh, paint our house and those kinds of things because we know that there is a deteriorating process that's going on. Um, we also know that in terms of entropy, that's the supreme law of the universe is entropy. We know in terms of entropy that the more complex things get, the faster they tend to uh, come apart, the more complicated they are. So if you can work hard to try to slow down the process of entropy and you can simplify things, you know, maybe you can, you can, you can uh, postpone or delay this, this deterioration process that's going on uh, a little longer. You can live a little longer. You can, your house is in better shape for longer. You're, you can drive your car for 300,000 miles instead of 200,000 miles or whatever because of these things. But one of the things also that this uh, third law is about is the fact that there seems to be one aspect of us that is invisible and that there is no evidence that it begins or that it ends. Uh, and that is consciousness. Uh, we don't know where our consciousness starts. We don't know when people start their consciousness. We don't know if it starts when you are born or if it starts when, hey, when you're older. We don't know if it starts before you're born. We don't know. And we certainly don't have any evidence when it ends. All of the evidence, the more we can stretch out life, the longer we can keep people or bring people back even after they've been uh, dead, uh, we find out that they still had some sort of awareness. We keep hearing about this. So uh, it seems to be that's the one aspect of our lives that doesn't seem to uh, necessarily be subject to this third law principle of the universe, entropy. And the evidence of that is in the is found, I think, most often in elderly people who um, have uh, seem to have lived by this consciousness or spirit more than necessarily always depending on their physical 
uh, functioning. And those people I have observed in my clinical practice over the years seem to have a kind of zest for life that uh, those who seem to be primarily focused on their ability to um, uh, to uh, to perform or on uh, physical kinds of things that are deteriorating, they seem to have more and more despair as uh, they get older because they see everything kind of going away. Mm-hmm. And it's depressing. Yeah, yeah, that would be. And yeah. so one one of the concepts I took from that, and there are a lot of things to take from that, is is simplify. Mm-hmm. You know, try to make things a little bit more simple. Simplification is probably uh, um, uh, um, an understated uh, um, uh, technique mm-hmm. uh, because uh, it is not only is it not only is it uh, uh, kind of feel good to to get things simple, but it really is slowing down this process of decay mm-hmm. as you simplify things. It's mm-hmm. just the less complicated things are, the less chance there are that things are going to go wrong. All right, we're halfway through those. We're mm-hmm. going to get to number four in a minute, but we have a phone call. So okay, let's go, let's go to Ann on the phone. Hi, Hi. I've enjoyed listening to you and uh, everything you say. I, you know, I feel like this is what we need need to do. This is, these are the kinds of things we need to think about in our society. And I would suggest that you run for Congress because <laughs> we, or you know, the state, uh, uh, the state house, because um, what what I see with both employers and with the, the school system and with um, political entities is this um, thing about might makes right, and if we just scare people enough, uh, we'll have power. And so I, I'm just wondering why we can't incorporate some basic psychological principles into um, training or giving training to, to new senators, to new teachers, to um, uh, people that you know have a lot of power and uh, for whom our society you know is 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 uh, looking for the the right answers. It's a it's a that you have an excellent point, and I I'm hoping that uh, that that is maybe where we're headed. I think that right now some of our leadership, in, to some degree, reflects um, this left brain kind of dominance that we have been in where, um, uh, you know, it, it's all about trying to, do a, uh, to manage things and try to, to dominate things and try to uh, figure things out rather than trying to work together uh, to, to unify people and to uh, try to uh, encourage participation. Um, I, um, I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting point you make about using fear because there really are only – when you boil it all down, there are only two motives in, uh, for doing anything in life, and it's either fear or love. And I don't, I'm not meaning love in a romantic sense. I'm meaning love in the sense that there's something beyond you that matters more than you. Um, and uh, too often, our motive is out of fear, a fear of something bad happening, fear that something won't work out the way we want it to, fear of something uh, beyond our control. Um, and it would be nice if we could have more leadership where people are looking beyond themselves, beyond them, their own personal interests, and even beyond the fear of the potential of what will happen if we don't do such and such, uh, and, and begin to look at, uh, you know, how can, we, how can we make things better? And how can we do this in a way that uh, uh, is, uh, encourages all to participate, or at least most to participate, more, more people to participate? All right, Ann. Thanks a lot for the call. Thank you, Ann. Okay, Good luck. Thanks. <laughs> Thank great, you very much. Great question. We, we'll be able to mark down this date, October twelfth, as the day that your political career was launched. <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that uh, a politician I probably could mm-hmm. never be. But well, <laughs> but I appreciate Ann's comments, and I do understand her point. You know, Ann, Ann sort of reminded me of a, or, or prompted me to ask this very basic question. I mean, what do you know? What do you know about um, the? I guess the psychological. Um, guidance or support that's available to like people at our state house or Congress? Is it just an individual basis? Yes. I I don't believe that there's anything formally set up. I could be wrong. I wouldn't doubt that the state employees have an EAP, an employees assistance program Mm -hmm. that they can access. Um, But I don't know about our elected officials. Now, maybe they have access to that. Um, but uh, uh, I would suspect that it would uh, – certainly it would be nothing – It would there would be no formal kind of um, uh, consultation. It would be something that they would have to, to reach out for. Yeah. Well, I think you know, part of what, what Ann was saying, at least my interpretation of what she was saying, is that it would be good if these kind of discussions were happening along with the discussions of policy and discussions of – 
you know, various uh, laws that are going to be proposed. And, yeah, you know, so. actually, I, I think that would be really interesting if if politicians could get together and put aside the issues to talk about, you know, how do we move people and how do we work together and how do we relate to one another and how do, uh, you know, how does that strengthen our society, even if we don't always agree. We don't have to agree. You know, when we're talking about the importance of relating to other people, it doesn't mean that there's always agreement, uh, but 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 just that there is a, a respect and appreciation for each other. All right. Again, our phone number is 855-0811-877-285-9348. And you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. You could uh, offer your support for Greg's political campaign or you could say that you're going to vote for somebody else, <laughs> yes, you know, whatever, right. whatever you want to do. That's right. Let's move on to the equalizer principle, principle number four. The equalizer principle. The reason I, I – this is my uh, term, the equalizer principle. I, I, it, it, what it describes is a, a, another part of that supreme law of the universe which says that uh, entropy happens. Uh, the equalizer principle says that um, the quality of your life is determined by your state of consciousness or how you see life, how you're experiencing it. And that uh, that is – that power is a function of how much of the – num- the number of variables, how much of your experience of life is determined by variables that are inside of you and not outside of you. So it's one of the – when we look at um, the data on uh, kind of a, a well-being, or happiness, contentment in life, what we find is that with the exception of starvation, I mean if you're, if you're, if you're struggling to, to find food to eat, then you can't have a sense of well-being or contentment. But after you're above that level – it really has more to do with your state of mind than it has to do with anything else. It doesn't have to do with money. It doesn't have to do with where you live. It doesn't really have to do with education. All of these things matter a little bit, but the thing that matters the most is how you see life or how you're experiencing life. So the equalizer principle says we're all equal in that regard. Once we're above the poverty level, once we know we're going to eat tonight, then how you see determines how you experience life and, and, and what you experience in life. I would call this the glass half full principle, right? <laughs> That's it, right. Absolutely. Similar, it's yeah. the glass half full principle. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes, now, now, again, relate this back to leadership. Um, well, the, the, um, the idea is uh, that um, if we could get people, especially organizations, to function um, uh, out of this uh, higher experience of life, not getting caught up all the times in the circumstances, uh, that, uh, all of the problems, but, but functioning out of this, this uh, uh, higher experience, better, uh, it's, a, it's more than just an attitude, but attitude is probably a word that describes it. You enter what is called uh, flow. Now, Michael Jordan used to talk about the zone. And in the zone, he said he didn't even know there was a crowd there. He couldn't hear anything. He was just out of kind of unconscious. And there have been books written about playing tennis unconsciously and doing other things unconsciously because we know that at this level where you're not caught up in the circumstances that are around you, you reach a different level of functioning, a higher order of functioning that causes you to be able to do things that sometimes even you are amazed that you could do. This is called in psychology, this is called flow. And as an organization, if in leadership you were able to help people uh, in the organization, yourself and in other people, to function at this higher level where my state of consciousness um, uh, causes me to have a positive experience of life uh, in everything that I'm doing, even when I'm dealing with problems, uh, that the organization would operate uh, closer to a state of flow, Mm -hmm. closer to its peak. Mm -hmm. Well, and again, it sounds like, uh, you know, Leaders or people who are in positions of leadership, whether they're true leaders or not. I mean, it's a matter of, of are you going to be optimistic? Are you going to have a good attitude about what you're doing? Are you going to come in and talk to people about what all the problems are? I mean, and it's not just right. by position, but now everybody. A- absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And the one the one distinction I make in the book, uh, uh, Bob, that I think is important is that the, the one way that I see this different from attitude is that lots of times, attitude is about. It's about deceiving yourself. It says that um, 
if it is uh, raining outside and it's um, gloomy, it, it's uh, having a positive attitude that isn't this a great day. Well, no, it's not a great day. The truth of the matter is it's gloomy and it's raining. The, the idea of how you experience life it means that you don't experience life in terms of circumstances. You don't experience them in terms of anything that's outside of you. It's inside of you. And the more, again, the more powerful the person is, the more the variables that determine the quality of their life are inside of them. So what you would say is, no, it's a gloomy, kind of miserable day outside. But, you know, my experience of it is up to me. I'm not going to deny what's happening. I'm not going to try to put a spin on it. But I am going, I have a choice and I can experience a better quality of life in, in spite of circumstances. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, before we get to number five, we have another email question that's come in. It says, in my observations of the children's school activities and in my volunteer work with kids, I've seen a strong trend to do things by committee or consensus. Kids are not encouraged to take the lead on projects or run for offices like they were 40 years ago. Is this part of the leadership void? Interesting question. It's a very interesting question, yes. Um, I had never considered that, and I don't have small kids anymore, and I don't work in the school systems uh, on a regular basis, so uh, I haven't observed this firsthand. Um, I do think that we are not encouraging our kids uh, often. We're, we're not encouraging our kids often to recognize that the power that they have um, is in within themselves and to lead the life that you want to lead. Um, now, if that puts you in a formal position of leadership, fine. But even if, if, if it doesn't, that doesn't mean that that's not the best life that you can live. And so um, I don't know if we're maybe not encouraging our kids to take a leadership role uh, I doubt we're encouraging kids to lead the best life that they can. I don't know that that message is being communicated. And uh, certainly that's what I tell my kids. I I try to encourage them to be wholly and completely what they are. Um, don't worry about being perfect and don't worry about what other people might think or what other people might want you to do. Be what it is that you wholly and, com- and, and completely feel yourself to be. And as a consequence of that, you'll lead, again, I'm back to that whole idea that life is leading, you'll lead the best life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, interesting, another interesting question because I, I, it leads me to wonder um, what kind of leadership concepts are taught to young kids in schools. I don't know. Is, That's a know? really good question. I, 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 I guess I am so out of touch with our educational system at this point that I wouldn't know. I do know that as of uh, 15 years ago, when my kids were probably at that point, I don't think there was anything being done in the school system that we were in. I think the, the idea was if you're the captain of the sports team or the, or the pr- president of your class, then you are a leader. You are a leader, Because right. you have a position that says you are a leader, yes. whether you are or not. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's true. By uh, position. Back or, in or, yeah. 40 years ago when I was in school. <laughs> that's where I was. All right, so we have about five minutes to go. Let's get to principles uh, five and six. Five and six, mm-hmm. okay. The real power principle. Uh, you know, I told you just a moment ago that power was a, a function of how many of the variables that determine your experience of life are inside of you. What I discovered, Bob, is that the real power principle, the deep power principle, principle is that life is only about relationships. Now, this is kind of the center point of all of what I say. Life is only about relationships, not all about relationships, only about relationships. And the reason that I say this is uh, because of four things that I discovered. First of all, I was managing our practice at a time when healthcare was uh, particularly um, uh, under a, a lot of uh, um, uh, stress a few years ago. And um, so I did the research into uh, what leadership, uh, what kinds of leadership is most likely to increase productivity and uh, ultimately profitability. And what I found is that there is uh, there's a fair amount of really good data out there to suggest that leaders who and companies that are more relational in the way that they operate are up to 40% more productive and up to 50% more profitable across all industries and across all economic conditions or times. The guy who writes a lot about this is a guy named Jeffrey Pfeiffer at Stanford Business School. Um, and uh, the data is there and it's good data. Um, the interesting thing is only one out of eight companies uh, does that. Um, and, and so you can really make yourself uh, uh, exceptional in your industry if you can emphasize relationships more. I also began to do a study as my partner was dying in um, happiness. There's a whole new field of psychology called positive psychology that looks at what are the variables that cause people to be happy. 
and also help because as he was dying, I was trying desperately to find everything I could for him to do that might uh, prolong his life. And I did the research on all of the kind of non-traditional medical things, the kind of psychosocial, spiritual things that people can do that might prolong their life. Well, what I found when I got all done with this was uh, when I looked at the productivity data, the profitability data, which came from my business experience, and then the data on on, um, on health and happiness, which came from my personal experience with my partners dying, I found that there was one variable in common, and that was relationships. That uh, the better the quality of relationships at work, the more productive individuals are and companies are, the more profitable companies are. And the better your quality of relationships in your personal life, the happier and the healthier you are and the longer you live. Mm. And so I say life is only about relationships. If you emphasize that, if that's the way you look at life, you should be happier, healthier, live longer, be more productive, and be more prosperous. And who could want more than that, Bob? It sounds like a good formula (laughs) for living. (laughs) It's hard to do, but it's a good formula. And then the sixth principle is related to that one, and the sixth principle is uh, called the principle of the golden rule. And it says really that life is only about relationships, and relationships are all about respect. There was a psychologist here at IU many years ago by the name of John Gottman. He has since left many years ago and went to the University of Washington. He has uh, done the landmark studies on relationships, and the relationships specifically that he looked at were marital relationships. He was looking at what really makes for a good marriage or a bad marriage, and uh, what he found over 25 years of studying marriage is that it wasn't communication, it wasn't the amount of money that you have, it wasn't romance, it, it wasn't even necessarily that you were all that compatible. He found that there was one variable that would more than likely predict uh, whether or not you could stay in your relationship long term, and this was marriage, but I think it extends to all kinds of relationships, that one variable was respect. If you respect other people, then you will have long-term relationships with them. And if you're disrespectful, it doesn't matter how much money you have, who you are, how much romance there is, how good your communication skills are, how compatible you are when you're getting married or or getting together or getting into a relationship. If you're disrespectful, the relationship's not going to last. So that's why I say relationships are all about respect. And in the book, I talk in more detail about what that really means and how how you can be respectful or disrespectful in relationships. All right. Very quickly, because we only have about a minute and a half to go. can you think of one person that – and maybe it's your, your former partner that you think of when you think of, of somebody who embodies leadership as you see it and yes. as you spell it out? I, you know, that's a great question, Bob. Thank you for asking it because one of the things I tell people when I talk about this book in a, in a group setting is I say, you know, uh, you have people in your life who have had more impact on you than anybody that was ever in a leadership position, than a president or a boss or anybody. And it's, oftentimes it's an informal position uh, uh, that they had in your life. In my case, it would be my partner, mm-hmm. but it would also be my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, it would also be a teacher, Mrs. Nicholson, that I had in the sixth grade. Mm-hmm. There are a number of people throughout my life, a mentor in uh, graduate school uh, who kind of took me under his wing, uh, a number of these people who were none of them necessarily my parents, I suppose, are in a formal uh, leadership position, but many of them were not necessarily in a formal leadership position, but they related to me. And in that relationship, they influenced me, they inspired me because I trusted them and I saw what they did in their life and I wanted to, to, to do the same. Do you have a website? I do. Dr. Greg Sipes. Dot com. Okay. And uh, you can go there. There's a bunch of stuff on there. So you can you go probably there could find out how to get your book there. You I'll can bet. find out how to get the book there. You bet. All right. Absolutely. I want to I thank uh, Greg Sipes for being here with us today. Thank it's you, a Bob. It's pleasure. It's been, it's been great for thank me. You thank very you very much. much. For, for Mary Catherine, who's missing in action today, producer Catherine Hageman and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org.